It's lovely to see you all here on this wonderful day. Let us pray as we come to what is a very awesome passage. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a God who saves. We thank and praise you that you have saved your people again and again throughout your history. We do pray, Father, today as we see our propensity to go back and rely on our own efforts. Teach us, Father, that our own efforts are futile. Teach us that we need to rely on what you have done as you have constantly worked to bring about the salvation of your people, bring about that salvation in our hearts that we might trust in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, my family loves going to foster. We love going to the beach. We love the joy of being at the beach. And one of the things we really enjoy about being at Foster is building sandcastles and sand dams. There's this point at Foster Beach where we go, where you go along and you, and you build this sandcastle or this little dam and we build it up and it, we build heaps of water, we have this pool, we come down and it's gone. So what do we do? We build it again because we're a clever family we build it up and we build the sand. Oh, it's so much fun. We're having a ball. Let's build up this sandcastle. Let's build it up. And we get it up. The, the, the water's all full. The little pool's all made. Oh, we're so good. Yeah. We're going. I leave the beach. We come back the next day. It's gone. How many times have we done this? I've been married for 20 years. We've been going to that beach since my kids were knee-high to a grasshopper. Every time we go to that beach, we build that sandcastle. Futile, a waste of time. But gee whiz, we keep doing it. We, this time, this time it's going to be different. This time, when the tides come in, the sand is going to hold and we will not have to build the sandcastle futile we keep doing it and you go oh well that's just a sandcastle adam it's just at the beach it's a lot of fun yet it is amazing how humanity has a propensity to keep doing the futile and today we're going to look at that propensity as we look at the law we're going to consider how we as humans have this propensity to keep on relying upon our efforts, to keep trying to earn our favour with God. We're going to see that we keep, having, we keep wanting to trust in our ability and our strength to earn God's favour. But as we're going to see what Paul has to say, that our efforts are futile, that they are a waste of time. And in fact, we have all that we need for life in Christ. And if we have all that we need for life in Christ, don't go back. Now, last week, Joe helpfully guided us through Paul's rebuke of Peter. Peter had started associating and eating with Gentiles. It was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of communion. But... As he'd done that, he started to pull back 
from the Gentiles when certain people, certain Jews arrived, the Judaizers. Judaizers were just Jews who were in the church who kept on saying, well, we need to go back to the law. We need to go back and follow the customs of the law. What the Judaizers were essentially saying was, now that you're Christians, now that you are followers of Yahweh, you need to keep Yahweh's laws in the Old Testament. And we go, well, that seems a bit strange, but you need to remember, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian churches, there was no New Testament. Paul's letter to the Galatian churches was most likely the very first letter written in the New Testament. And if you keep that in mind, you get a sense of the power of the Judaizers' argument. At that point in time, all the Christians have as God's word is what we refer to as the Old Testament. But Paul understood what would happen if Christians thought they needed to keep the law. That simply through osmosis or our own sinfulness, people would make their salvation or their relationship dependent upon their works. They would make their relationship with God dependent upon their keeping the law. That is why he says in verses 15 and 16, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Jesus Christ. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no human being will be justified. Paul's argument is summed up in these verses as Christians, our standing before God is not based upon any work, any effort, any merit, anything we can do we stand justified right before God simply based on what Jesus has done for us. That is what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are totally dependent upon Jesus' death upon the cross and his taking of punishment for our sin to stand before a holy God. To be justified by faith in Christ Jesus is to trust Jesus' death as the basis for our restored relationship with God. Now Paul goes on to explain the implication of these in the next five verses. And he starts with this simple idea in verses 17 and 18. If you trust in Jesus for your justification, do not go back. If you are saved by Jesus' death, do not go back to trusting in your ability to keep the law. Verse 17. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Now, Paul raises what is the objection of the day to 
the idea of grace alone. And so when people today read this passage, they often take it to mean, well, if I'm justified by grace alone or by Jesus' death alone and our sin has all been dealt with, then I'm free to sin as much as I like, right? And we think, as we read that, well, that's the objection Paul is dealing with. And I've heard this objection quite a bit from atheists and Roman Catholics to grace alone. They say, if Jesus died to forgive all our sin, then have at it. Do as you please. They're saying if a person is forgiven all their sin, they can just keep on sinning. There's no restraints to doing evil. So when Christians look at this passage and they think Paul is dealing with the objection of grace alone, to this objection to grace alone, they read, well, how do I understand Paul's answer? When you understand and think deeply about what Paul is saying, you see there's a bit of a disconnect between verse 17 and 18 if you take our modern objection into reading the passage. What we need to do is take a step back and place the objection that Paul is dealing with in the context of his own argument. And when we do this, we see that Paul answers a slightly different objection to what opponents today make to grace alone. Now, let's look at the passage in context. When Paul uses the word sinners, as I said earlier, he's referring to Gentiles. That idea comes from verse 15, where Paul calls everyone who is not a Jew, aka Gentiles, us sinners. That is the language he uses. What the Judaizers seem to be arguing is this. If we are all justified through faith alone, by grace alone, then everyone, everyone in the whole world is in the same boat. And if everyone is in the same boat, we are all sinners before God, then the law has no power, it has no value. In essence, if we are all justified by God exactly the same way through faith, then the law has no purpose. Because Christians, especially Jewish Christians, are just like everyone else. And if Christ's death makes everyone the same, then all, then all are sinners and Christ is a promoter of sin. Remember, they have no New Testament. All they have as God's word is the Old Testament. So they would have been thinking if we're justified by grace alone, through, gra uh, through grace alone, by faith alone, then the law, that is God's word, has no purpose. And if people don't have to keep the law, then Christ's death makes us all sinners. Christ has become a servant of sin. Rhetorically, it would have been a powerful argument in the absence of the New Testament. The argument is about the point and purpose of the Old Testament law. That is what Paul has in view. And when we understand that, then we understand Paul's answer in verse 18. It is made clear. Is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. Because if I rebuild what has been destroyed, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. That is, if anyone uses the law as a means for or 
a means of obtaining justification, then the whole law goes into effect and they will be condemned by the law before God. In fact, if you read the law, you will know that. Don't go back to the law, is what Paul is saying. It was fascinating listening to the story last week that Joe brought up of the lady trying to keep the Passover, how she worked so hard and went to so much effort to please God and how all her efforts, all her work, where did it lead? Misery and thinking that she was a failure before God. It was so sad to hear her story and hear her say that she had tried so hard to please God and yet all she felt like was a failure. But that is the point of the law. It shows that we are all failures. But we keep trying to go back and implement parts of the law. It is a continual theme throughout the Bible that man keeps sinning, that man keeps rebelling against God, that he keeps going back, that he keeps looking back to the past. Remember Lot's wife. The sky is falling down. The sky is raining sulfur and fire. Lot's family is fleeing for their very lives. And Lot's wife? She looks back, apparently longing for the life she has lost in Sodom. And she dies by becoming a pillar of salt. Well, consider Israel. Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. We heard how God had done that great and powerful work. He led them out of the land of slavery. God had done mighty deeds among them. He had saved them. And they stand on the edge of the promised land after watching God destroy the mightiest nation on the planet. And God commands them, go into the land, take the land. And their response? No, that's too scary. Let us go back to the land of Egypt. Anyone reading the law should know the propensity of the human heart. We hear the wonderful news that God has saved us by his grace. God has delivered us from his judgment. And after being saved, what are we so tempted to do with that news? What must I do? We should have a Passover meal. That's a good idea. We are tempted to go back we are tempted in our sin, thinking, well, it can't hurt. The Israelites did it. But Paul's point is, no, the Israelites never did it. They failed miserably at keeping the law. And so, today, if you add even one bit of the law, just one bit to your Christian life, you have to do it all. So how does that apply? Does it answer today's objection to the idea of grace alone? Well, let's think about that. 
if God doesn't want us to attempt to keep his law as a means of pleasing him, the law he revealed to his people after saving them, if God doesn't accept people trying to keep his revealed law, do you think there is any possible chance that God is going to accept a man-made law that you make up? Do you think there's any chance he is going to accept any ritual, any religion, any way? If he doesn't accept our attempts to keep his law, he is most certainly not going to accept any other attempt at keeping any other rule. Though Paul doesn't directly address the objections we face to grace alone, his answer certainly covers them by implication. God will never accept any attempt of man to try and win his favour. We do not need a pope or a priest. We don't need fancy buildings. We don't need religious gurus offerings, offering 10-step guides to nirvana. There are no rules, there are no acts, there are no laws, rituals, rites, drugs. There is nothing that will bring us back into a right communion with God except Jesus Christ. That is Paul's point. If you have faith in Jesus, you do not need the law for anything. And if we do try to keep the law, we are actually taking away from Christ. We are saying his death is not sufficient for us. Even if we say, well, Christ has done 99.9%. All I need to do is that last 1.1 of a percent. I just have to do a little bit because that is honouring to Christ. No. No. It is not. It is saying Christ's work is insufficient. You know what we are really saying when we say Christ requires our efforts? We are really saying, Jesus, your works for God were not good enough. Which is really to say, Jesus... You are not good enough for God. Do not do that. Do not go there, brothers and sisters. Christ has done all we need to stand before God. Going back to our efforts is like building the dam at the beach. It's futile. It is foolish. There is no need to go back. We cannot keep our own standards. There is no way we're going to keep God's. Don't go back. But instead, instead of trying to live by the law, we now live to God. In verses 19 and 20, Paul explains how to use the law. What was the law or what is its purpose in salvation history? 
And if you haven't heard that phrase, salvation history, before, it's just talking about the history of the Bible as God works to save his people. And when it comes to the law, what Paul is going to go on to explain is its purpose. And what he's going to say is the problem with the law isn't the law itself or its commandments per se. The problem of the law is our ability to keep the law. Our sin makes it impossible for us to keep God's law. The unregenerate human heart in sin cannot obey God. Full stop, end of story. And Paul points out that is the law's purpose, to show people that they cannot obey God. The fact that people keep wanting to use the law, to go back to the law in terms of Christian identity and understanding, shows that we have a heart problem. The only thing you ever find in the law is condemnation. Not because the law is faulty, but because our hearts are. Reading from verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. Oh. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As Paul looks at the law, with all its instructions about how to live, he keeps hitting his inability to keep it. The law teaches sinful people that they sin. The law can and only ever will condemn sinful people. And so Paul makes the statement, through the law, he's died to the law. He no longer seeks to earn God's pleasure through his merits of keeping the law, for he knows he cannot do it. We keep breaking the law. And that is why I had the whole of Deuteronomy read out, because I wanted you to hear both the rewards and the curses if a person was to attempt to keep the law. I remember being in a church where a, a passage similar to Deuteronomy was read out and someone in the congregation asked, should we keep the law? And the minister rightly said, no, we are saved by grace. Then the person asked, well, if we are saved by grace, why are people blessed if they keep the law? And the minister rightly said, yes, people are blessed if they keep the law. Then the person stormed out of the church saying the minister was teaching salvation by works. But he wasn't. What the person had failed to understand is that the law would work. That God would bless a person if they could keep the law. That is, all the blessings are in the law to show that the law is good. That God would bless people who keep the law. The problem is... We can't. If we attempt to keep the law, we'll only end up in the curses and the death. When we try and keep the law, we fail. And we fail to please God. Paul knows how deadly the law can be. That is why he says in Philippians about his keeping of the law. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised 
the eighth day of the nation of Hebrew, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul was zealous for the law. He strived with all his might amongst his peer, and he was blameless in keeping it. Where did that zeal, that fervour, that tenacity lead him? It led to complete opposition to God. But as Paul says, we have died to the law and he now lives for God. And when we read that phrase, live for God, I don't know about you, but for me, my tendency is to think, like this guy, well, what must I do? How do I live? What choices, what motivations, what actions do I need to take? So basically, I translate that phrase, live for God, as just try harder. But as I read and thought about this phrase this week in context, Paul doesn't mean just try harder for God. What I think he's saying is, is this. Having justification through faith in Jesus makes us alive for God. Paul is not telling us how to live before God or what we have to do for God. That would be against his whole argument. He's telling us about the status we now have before God. Instead of dead in our works, trying to achieve God's pleasure, we are now alive to God, alive for God through trusting his son. That is, Paul is not talking about how we are to live for God. Instead, he is explaining how God's grace has made us alive to God. He is talking about our status before God. We are now alive by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Our tendency when we hear the phrase live for God is just to look up and ask, God, how do I please you in this moment? Now, that is an important question that we should ask, but it's just not Paul's point here. When you read verse 20, he doesn't say anything about the way we are to live or give us any instructions or commands to complete. He just tells us about how he no longer lives, but how Christ lives in him. We have been united with Jesus in his death and we are united with Christ in his life. Though we live in this world, though we live in the flesh, and that is all Paul means by that phrase in the flesh here, we have true life. We have life with God. We have been caught up into the very relationships of the Trinity. And we now are alive to God. Now this has important implications for the way we live and Paul will go on to explain those later in the letter. But at this point of the argument, what it really should create in us is incredible thankfulness and relief. We have a new status, a new hope. We have life. And we've been caught up into the very relationships of God in Jesus Christ. 
my first point was don't go back. But when you realise how much has been given to us through faith in Jesus, my second point is why would you want to? We need to honour God, trust his grace. Have you ever wondered why the cross we have is empty? The cross up here. Every Sunday you come in and you see the cross up on the wall and you probably don't pay it much heed. That is a good thing. But as you know, uh, but many of you might not know, sorry, that not all the crosses in all the Anglican churches are empty. When I first became a Christian, the church I attended had a very similar cross up the front. And on that cross hung a portrayal of a very pained and pierced Jesus. I don't know why they had that cross, uh, that Jesus on the cross, on the wall. I never asked the minister, but I always wondered about it. Though I can't tell you why they had a portrayal of Jesus up there, I can tell you why we don't. We don't have Jesus up on that cross because his work on the cross is done. His salvation for us is complete. God's wrath and judgment for his people have been completely dealt with and it is finished. When you look up at the cross, you are supposed to see that Jesus' work is complete. It is finished, kaput, over, done with. And that is what you are supposed to see upon the cross. Nothing. And seeing nothing, this is what you should think. When you look up at that cross, and I want you to look up, we can know these truths. Has God's anger at my sin been dealt with in Jesus? Done. Am I justified before God? Done. Has God adopted me and brought me into his life in Jesus? Done. Have I been made ready to serve God through Jesus' death? Done. What must I do to earn God's favour? Done in Jesus. As Paul says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The moment you rely on your own works, you lose all of those great duns. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favour. Honour God, trust his grace through the death he has given. There is nothing you have to do to earn God's good grace to you because it has all been done in Jesus. Let no one, let no one take that from you. So honour God, trust his grace. As you walk out these doors today and you are thinking, what should I have taken from this talk? This is it. God's grace has done everything we need to stand justified before God. 
let no one take that great news from you. For God has given you life in Christ. He has done all you need for life in him. So live for his praise and live for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a great and gracious God, that you have done all that we need for life and salvation in the death and resurrection of your Son. We pray, Father, this day that we will live for his honour and live for his praise by trusting his death. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.